Hey up, and welcome to the Temple of Blet, episode I. This is another entry into the history of Roadrunner record series, and it's probably one of the last ones I'll be putting in this week. I expect to be putting a couple more in next week, at the time of speaking, of course. Of course, anything can happen. So this conversation is with Gary Levermore of Third Mind Records. Uh, Third Mind is a British label that was kind of the flagship label for artists such as Frontline Assembly, Trition, Control Bleeding in the nursery, kind of the electronic and industrial acts of the time in sort of the mid to late 80s. The label entered into a partnership with Roadrunner Records in 1991, and it kind of comes at that really cool time where Roadrunner starts moving left and right and expanding beyond sort of thrash and death metal. So I'm grateful to Gary for telling me the story of Third Mind Records and how that partnership with Roadrunner went. And we also go into a little bit of the minutia of how labels work. I mean, he was the one-man operation with Third Mind for a long, long time. And he now operates a PR firm known as Red Sand PR. At the minute, I'd, I'd like to plug the website, but I think it's down at the minute. But if you just type in Red Sand PR into Google, it's bound to come up. Oh yeah, this uh, interview was actually conducted over two sessions over two weeks, so there'll be a bit somewhere in the middle where it just fades out about an hour in, and then it fades straight back in with the following bit. That's just to indicate that some time has passed. It'll be obvious when you hear it, but if you if you hear it fading out without the outro theme, then that's why. So thanks again, Gary. Let's get into it. One, two, fuck shit up. That's why I was curious as to what you were using in terms of applications. Yeah. Oh, no worries. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, first of all, thank you very much for, for giving me your time. Um, no. And it was a completely random request, completely out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they come in from time to time. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, how are you anyway, in, in general? I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Um, uh, actually, question to ask you first of all so um how did you hear about me um generally your name is quite closely associated with third mind in terms of documentation that's out there on wikipedia on um discogs things like that um and eventually uh when i was searching you out uh, i don't usually look on linkedin but i thought i'll give it a punt and when i saw your name associated red with red sands that's what gave the link to me okay okay i i i actually wondered whether perhaps you had been on one of my mailing lists at some point um uh but i guess not i'm not i'm not an in like an industrial or electronic guy i'm i'm a, I'm a pure metal dude yeah well the, fun, the funny thing is one of my clients is uh frontiers um so i i handle uk ah. for about well i'd probably say 95 percent of their releases right okay so I thought perhaps that may be that might have been a way in. Um, you know, I have various other rock and metal clients as well, but certainly with Frontiers, I'm I'm usually promoting anywhere between four and seven albums a month for them. Jesus, uh, it's a lot, yeah. And then then I have other clients as well, and you know, and, and funnily enough, another one of my clients is um, the American industrial label Metropolis Records. Yep, and. Yep. You know, quite a few acts I worked with back in the 80s and 90s, aside mm. from Metropolis Records these days. Right, in, okay. Including Frontline Assembly, Skinny Puppy, you know, yeah. a couple of others. So, uh, and then I, and I guess sort of added to all of that, um, you know, I've 
I've never known anybody else with the same name as me. <laughs> and, and, there are, and there are very, very few Levermores out there. And, and the ones that are tend to be related. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry to tell you that I, I adopted a more of a stalker approach to getting your details. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> well, the um, I'll give you the. I don't want to take up too much of your time, so I'll give you the. I'll give you the skinny on what I'm, I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to just pull pull together a picture of Roadrunner Records from as close to beginning to end as I possibly can, even though they're still going. Um, so I'm trying to connect the dots all over the place, and 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 this sometimes means talking to bands and. Um, there's a, this really weird period in the early '90s where I was go- trolling through the discogs and trying to figure out, okay, well, who are the who are the forgotten acts and things like that? What what weird stuff comes out of Roadrunner, you know, a predominantly metal label? And I ended up seeing just like a big spate of records that were licensed from Third Mind, were Third Mind, or eventually became were Third Mind acts that became Roadrunner acts. And I was like, this is very intriguing, yeah. and it's a it comes at a period in Roadrunner's uh, lifespan, if you want to call it that, where they seem to turn left from death metal and thrash metal and go all out on alternative rock, industrial electronica. I call this like, have you have you familiar with uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Uh, I am. To be honest with you, I never watched it at the time, but uh, I have a girlfriend that's much younger than me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she was a huge fan and she's actually made me watch a couple of episodes uh, like in the last year or so <laughs> right no, good perfect you'll, you'll understand this and so this period of Rhoda and I refer to as bronze core because right. all, all the bands would be completely appropriately suited to play the bronze in that show right okay I don't quite get what you mean but I saw all right. it's, you know, it's that pub where they all hang out it's that club where they, that all, every time there's a band on stage it's at the bronze ah okay okay mm. I get you and so all that cool sort of post-grungy 90s lovely stuff. And that's for some reason what Roadrunner ended up putting out a lot of. Um, and obviously a big part of that was was third mind for a time. Yeah. By the way, how old are you? I'm 31. So, okay, yeah, that's interesting because, you know, it's been 26 years since I worked with Roadrunner. Um, so you'd have been five years old. Yeah, yeah. 90, 1994. Um was if effectively when Third Mind ended. I mean, it, it did trundle along for another year under Roadrunner's own auspices, but I, I basically got out at the end of April 1994. Right, right. Um, and only a couple more records came out on Third Mind after that time. Because uh, I, I guess, essentially, everyone knew it was my label. Yeah, yeah. So where do you want to... Because pre- presumably you've spoken to other, you know, more key roadrunner personnel as such from that era yeah or are you still arranging those those chats it's been dither so it, it i've trying to there's a quite a span of people so <laughs> last week i spoke to satan who were an 80s one of the first signings of roadrunner wholesale yeah um, last week i spoke to howie abrams yeah um and in an hour's time i'm speaking to realm who are another metal band from the time Okay. Uh, about what's, the late 80s. What's Howie Abrams up to these days? He's writing. He owns a publishing company with Case Wessels, to my understanding. Ah, oh, okay. And is Howie still based in New York? or? Yeah, according to the uh, time zones I had to juggle when, uh, okay. <laughs> when I was calling the other week. Yeah. Obviously, I met, I met Howie a number of times, and you know, and he was one of the A&R guys uh, in New York uh, mm. when I was... At least I assumed he was based in New York. I, whenever I met him, it was in New York um uh although um 
I guess the um, the absolute, you know, the person who seemed to sign most of the uh, the the hits, as it were, was um, was Monty Connor. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and and Monty is now part of Nuclear Blast with Mark Palmer, who who really, as far as the UK is concerned, is the man you have to talk to. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to work my way there. <laughs> But it's, it's obviously, it's, especially in this particular game, it's difficult to reach out to certain personnel because there's an overriding presumption that I'm going to hand them a demo. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not. Um, in fact, that's what Harry Avery said about Case Wessels. Like, I'll never, ever, ever get to speak. No one will ever speak to him. He doesn't do interviews because he's just terrified that someone will try and hand him a demo. <laughs> and he's not bothered. Funny. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've I've not spoken with uh, with Case since I think probably the last time I saw him was around two thousand and one uh, uh, at the Medem conference in uh, in Cannes. Right. Uh, and funnily enough, it was about three months after I had, I guess I had helmed a really huge hit single in the UK mm-hmm. uh, by the two guys from Frontline Assembly. Right. Yeah. Uh, but under a different name. Um, so it was one of those things where he was congratulating me. Um, ah. And, um, you know, it's just kind of funny because obviously for a brief time, you know, when when I left Third Mind Roadrunner, Frontline Assembly transferred onto the main Roadrunner label to release an mm. album, Millennium, and then they got dropped. Mm. Uh, which, you know, it, it, I think it was kind of inevitable because they weren't, they weren't the cheapest band to record. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, and certainly didn't, you know, Sepultura or typo negative type quantities, let's yeah. say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, long, long story. Long story. Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll, we'll come around right, to it. <laughs> so I'll, I've got some questions, but I do like how we are going over and around. So mm-hmm. let's not be too limited by these questions, but there are certain little um, nooks and crannies that I'm hoping to get into. Yeah. If that's cool. So were there, okay, I'm, trying, I'm going to try and pitch the, the life cycle of Third Mind um, with the relevant milestones that we're going to talk about. So Third Mind starts, in fact, let's forget Third Mind, and let's start with yourself creating a fanzine in the yeah. early 80s with your buddies. Yeah. Uh, eventually, you get the the idea that maybe it's it's worthwhile trying to put some ver- uh, some some compilations out there with the acts that you're trying to push. Yeah. Um, this develops into Third Mind, and you spend the next effectively twelve years pushing all the music that you like uh, in as much capacity as you possibly can. And there's some flagships there, such as Frontline. There's Control Bleeding. There's in the nursery. There's a few other ones in there. Yeah. Again, it's not my quite my forte. This particular area. Um, while doing this, you enter into a partnership with Roadrunner. Yeah. Is that okay? There's kind of three. There's three milestones with Roadrunner. There's that I'm seeing. There's the partnership. There's the fifty percent stake, and then there's the the acquisition. Yeah. Are they to be treated as separate things, or was the initial partnership the same thing as the 50% stake? Uh, so the initial partnership was a 50-50 split. Got it. Right, uh, okay. But um, bear in mind, you know, I was this guy that had basically started started Third Mind when I was 19 years old. Mm. Um, didn't know anything. 
um, made a lot of mistakes, got a few things right. Yeah. Um, and um, one big mistake I made uh, was uh, it wasn't even really a mistake, but I uh, for the first four years of Third Mind, I was distributed. My releases were distributed by Rough Trade in the UK and then they exported to other territories. Mm-hmm. Um, at, in the middle of 1987, I thought this isn't really working for me anymore. I'm going to change. Mm-hmm. And I had been approached by um, uh, a new group called Frontline Assembly mm-hmm. uh, to release some music uh, that, that they had sent me. Um, and when I say they, initially it was one person, Bill Lieb. Okay. And uh, but he 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 was starting to work with another guy called Michael Balch. Mm-hmm. Balch. Um, and and I said, yeah, this is great. I'd like to put this out, but can you bear with me? Because I'm going to change my distribution. So I switched from Rough Trade to Play It Again, Sam, which was based in Brussels. Right. And so f- the first six months of 1988 i put out seven or eight records mm-hmm. um with play it again sam as my distributor two of them were by frontline assembly because there of course there was some material they had stockpiled that, that i also released mm-hmm. and weirdly enough um they they just before i put out their first records or what i thought were their first records they put out two other records through other labels uh, and it turned out they they had so much material they contacted a couple of other labels as well so it's right, a bit okay. but hey ho you know this, this is the way these things go Divide um, and conquer. But, but um i i had an incredibly busy time putting all these records out relocating to london um yep. I, i'm actually originally from around where i live now um which is the canterbury area Right. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, I, I re- relocated into London uh, literally the the, the 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 very last day of June, nineteen eighty-eight, and I was um, I was managing a singer-songwriter called Bill Pritchard, right, who okay. was in the UK. Uh, mm-hmm. But I released his first two albums, and Play It Again, Sam actually said to me, "We would like to sign this guy, but of course, you know, we've just started." You, you've, we've just started distributing your label and we, yeah. we don't want to steal him off you so we worked out uh, an arrangement um that i became bill's manager and okay. so so i i was managing him going on tour with him etc etc you were still involved him. yeah yeah so I was, I was still involved but he actually signed to play it again sam okay now the reason i'm going into a bit of detail there is because that's quite it's got quite some relevance because two years later i found myself in a position where um uh i had eventually signed frontline assembly to a long-term contract which meant that my distributor had to lend me some money so they could record a plusher sounding record okay um and not only that but once that one had come out had done really well they'd done a european tour which unfortunately i funded the entire thing myself and lost about nine grand Jesus. Um, uh, we then got into a position where they wanted to make another record, which was three times more expensive. So the same distributor lent me money to make that record. Yeah. And um, suffice to say, I was 
just left in a position of, um, I guess, holding the baby is the operative phrase, because while all this had been going on, I was I had agreed to enter a 50 50 partnership deal with Play it Against Sam for my label. OK, right. Um, and uh, having having essentially funded the recording of a Frontline Assembly album in the early months of 1990, which was great. You know, it really was for what it was. It was absolute state of the art. And, yeah. you know, everyone who heard it was saying, wow, this, you know, this sounds so much bigger and better than really the scene leaders at the time, which was Front 242. Mm-hmm. Uh, for what for what they were doing um anyway the problem the problem i had was that um i despite the fact that frontline assembly records were selling quite well in the nursery was selling quite well which were my other main expense and i had a couple of other records that had sold quite well um i was permanently in debt to play it again sam and okay. yep. they ended up presenting me with a contract which was 51 49 percent so yeah. I don't want to go into too much detail, but let's just say I didn't sign it. Yep. Um, and I had an old friend from Canterbury who, and this is where, this is where it gets slightly strange. Back in, I guess, 89, an album had come out um, through a label called, I think it was Emergo. Emergo, yeah, there was, it was like the alternative imprint. There was, yeah, and, and, the, and sorry, it, was, it was released as Nico and the Faction. Now, the Faction, Faction. was signed to Third Mind. Um, <laughs> All right. And they knew nothing about this record. Oh, no. Um, okay. And, and the, the, the funny thing is, when I, when I had signed the Faction, part of the deal was, well, you're Nico's backing band, um, and they were going to be playing their own sets, literally you know as support to nico and thought well that's great that's a really good selling point unfortunately kind of been within more than a few weeks of me signing them nico died right okay um you know she died in in fact i think she died around june 1988 um and um anyway so yeah this record came out and i thought well, that's a bit rich, you know, uh, the band don't know anything about this. I'm going to get in touch with the label. Anyway, it turned out that the person responsible for the release, at least over here, was an old friend of mine from Canterbury, oh, right. who was an A&R man for Roadrunner in the UK, who you should speak to as well. He's a nice guy, um, Andy Saunders. Andy Saunders. Andy runs a company called Velocity Communications. Um, and uh, just after he was uh, um, let go by Roadrunner, which was in april 1992 mm-hmm. he became the head of press at creation okay and and he was actually very very responsible for certain things that went on between creation records and the labor government for example you know the the whole thing with um uh noel gallagher going to tend i mean mm-hmm. Actually, it's probably before your time, isn't it? Thinking about it. I, sorry, I, I, I look back. You know, you might, you might know, but I mean, you'd, you'd have been about 10 years old or something when all that was going, or maybe even younger. I'm always cognizant in hindsight. Yeah. <laughs> but Andy would be a good person for you to speak to. I've, um, I've noted his name. Thank you very much for that. He would He would have some good insight. You'll find him very easily. He's very active on uh, social media. Okay. I, don't, I won't be on the West Yorkshire Police's watch list then for this one. <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, yeah, but so it, it was kind of weird. So we had this conversation and I, I kind of understood what had happened with that particular release. And I guess it just kind of stuck in his mind and we kind of communicated from time to time. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, cut a long story short, when he found out that I was having some trouble with play against Sam, he said, oh, you should speak to my boss. And that's how that's how my 50-50 deal with Roadrunner came about. That's so interesting because my other note was going to be, was there a was there a through line between you guys through yeah. controlled bleeding? No, there wasn't. Um, uh, I, I I had had some dealings with Paul Moss from controlled bleeding, and of course we knew of each other, but um, that um, that me releasing a controlled bleeding record did come about by me having gone into partnership with Roadrunner because I guess right. he was in touch with Roadrunner in New York, yep. um, and um, yeah, you know that 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 actually was the reason why I put out a controlled bleeding record. Is that way around, not the other way around? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, but but um, now I, I liked Paul Moss, but um, I I you know I guess if I'd stayed with Play it Against Sam, I wouldn't have released one of their records. Mm. Uh, but anyway, that that's how the deal with that's how the deal with Roadrunner came about. Um, it was you know I guess these things always you know there there's always some kind of weird little thing you know you know like a bit like with you know a bit like the old saying of you know you make your own luck. Um, you know, maybe sometimes you make your own bad luck. Um, and, uh, and then sometimes there's things that are in the middle. Um, and this thing with, with, with Roadrunner was just very, very interesting because I, you know, obviously I was, I was very well aware of the record, but metal wasn't my thing at all. I have to say, um, and, um, you know, I hadn't really heard any metal records, um, since, um, the early eighties. Um, and uh, of course, I knew who some of these bands were, but I didn't read Kerrang. You know, yep. I, I didn't. I didn't read any other uh, metal mags that were around at the time. Um, so yeah, so that so basically that takes us to the yeah, I guess the um, the early summer of 1991. Um, you know, I stopped working from my flat in northeast London and mm-hmm. basically got an office at Roadrunners. Um, uh, London office in West London, and that's uh, where was Mark Palmer there at that time. Mark was there, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and um, yeah. So we 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 started working together, and you know the you know it's interesting when you say because uh, of course I I I only knew of label um, at that time, but around the same time that that I started started working with them. They also got a a London-based guy called Dave Howell in to run a dance label. (laughs) You know, basically house music. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know that. uh, So we had offices next, you know, next to each other, and then Andy Saunders was the, you know, was the rock guy in in another room. Um, And um, yeah, it was it was it was interesting, but the. the one of the very first records that Roadrunner ever put out and possibly was the first album Roadrunner ever put out was by a a very cult German underground act called Liaison Dangereuse. Correct. And uh, and, and actually there's a single called Los Ninos del Parque, 
which yep. I bought when it came out um, on Mute Records. It was a very early Mute release in the UK in 1982. Um, and, uh, you know, that, you know, like now that is held up as one of the seminal, you know, underground electronic uh, post-punk dance records. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That, that yeah, era for Roadrunner, the early 80s, is full of that stuff. I'm put that out, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, may, maybe at that time, uh, Case didn't quite know what he wanted to do with the label or whether, you know, maybe he really did want to put out all kinds of everything, you know. That seems to be it. I think the um, the early 80s for, for Roadrunner appears to be Case going, right, I know, I've just come from, um, what was he coming from? It wasn't RCA. It was oh, Polygram. He was just coming from Polygram, and I think he was effectively saying, right, I'm happy to do all the heavy lifting on any distribution, on any weird stuff you've got, because quite a lot of, you know, art deco, that kind of avant-garde people in Europe who want to hear your music America or wherever else in the world. So I think that was his model first, to get anything in, because he knows he's got a car that can sell it, he's got the network to sell it. And I think the metal thing came maybe a few years later. My, obviously, I've got no confirmation on this, but when I was doing my reading, my stipulation is effectively satanic panic metal is the antagonist and that's when he starts pouring money into these bands like merciful fate and satan and then this is the trajectory it goes on and it's interesting you mentioned the dance label because my next question it's like you got my notes (laughs) the next question was going to be what did they see in third mind in terms of there's there's clearly some viability if you're selling records but it isn't metal i I I I tell you what it was they saw me um because i think andy saunders had probably said to case oh, this guy, Gary Levermore, you know, he was two years above me at school. Mm. And two years after leaving school, he's putting these records out. You know, nobody else in our area has done that since the days of Soft Machine or whatever, you know. Um, and it's true, you know, that there, 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 there was a little kind of um, scene in Canterbury, but it was all quite small towny, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and um, and I, I, I guess, you know, I did look at the big picture. Um mm. And I guess Andy was probably quite impressed that I'd been able to, I'd been able, I'd been able to do all this stuff off my own bat at such a young age. Yeah. Um, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, there was there was an awful lot of trial and error concerned, and I, you know, I lost tons of money on various projects that I was just stupid to get involved with. Mm-hmm. But you know, having read X number of, you know, biographies, autobiographies, histories of music. To be honest with you, I probably didn't make as many bad mistakes as a lot of other people. Um, yeah, it's just these things happen sometimes, you know. Um, and um, yeah, so I think I think Andy had seen that, and and, and I remember what had happened that because um, these conversations really went back to the beginning of no, they went back to the autumn of 1990. That's right, um, because I remember going to Brussels for a meeting in October 1990 to say I'm not going to sign this contract and them saying well maybe we could do something but actually you know would you consider moving to Brussels this is play it again Sam yeah, yeah. and um, I kind of thought about it for 10 minutes um, and then obviously on the ferry on the way home um, <laughs> but it was like do I really want to do that I, I like London I you know I, I'd only been living in London just over two years at that point mm. Um, and um, fun, funny thing is, I went to a football match the following afternoon, and it kind of made up my mind. Um, <laughs> having just watched West Ham win a game seven-one, how could I ever leave Northeast? Yeah. 
It's probably the last time we won a game seven one, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, it was it was one of those days, you know. Um, and uh, I, it 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 was the day I started the fight back. I mean, I use the football thing loosely, but it has sometimes gone through my mind, you know. Um, and um, uh, yeah, you know, that's when I I started talking to some other people, and then then eventually, yeah, I guess within a couple of months, I'd spoken to Andy Saunders. I then wrote, I then um in fact the funny thing is I I had frontline assembly on a uh North American tour which was immediately followed by a European tour which again I funded uh but by that time uh obviously I knew a bit more um and um I wasn't going to get stung twice and I think I only lost 1500 quid on that second tour and uh, and to be fair case had said to me if you need to spend five grand, uh, do it, and I'll I'll cover you. Um, because what? at that time we 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 already had a sort of agreement in place it was going to happen. Because mm-hmm. uh, I came back from from uh, in fact I, I went to some dates um, in uh, in and around New York. A frontline assembly was supporting Killing Joke actually. Okay. Um, and um, uh, um. When I, as soon as I got back to uh, London, I wrote a business plan, sent it to Andy, who'd sent it to Case. Case came back to me, said, yeah, this is great. Let's do this. And, and then a few weeks after that was when Frontline Assembly came over and did the European tour. Um, so a- April, May, um, 91. Um, That's great. That's and, then, and I think it was the last week of May, perhaps, that I moved my office into uh, Roadrunners London uh, building. Did you... From any sort of like flourishing friendships with anyone from Road or any other sort of personnel there, and what was your impression of Case sort of long term? We've had we've had little instances where he's he's cropping up and saying hi and, and obviously offering you five grand, but how was he to work with, and how were the guys at Road to work with? Um, now this this is kind of interesting because I think for a little while I kind of figured that they thought I might be able to sign the next Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> and obviously I had front assembly who were doing pretty well uh, and it was obvious they were very very good within their genre and probably there were there were some other bands that maybe they'd spoken to who said oh yeah we know that guy you know he's good to deal with or you know or maybe maybe there wasn't too much negativity let's say um and um uh so they kind of let me do what I wanted to start with and and to be honest with you that I mentioned the nine inch nails thing because um um, I think I was the first person in Europe to offer them a record deal, right? Um, because I I got sent a demo um, actually around the time that I moved my office from Canterbury to London. So this would have been June 1988, um, and um, uh, I thought, wow, this 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 has really got something. And um, so I, of course I contacted Trent Reznor's manager at the time and said, yeah, I'd love to do a deal. And then obviously. A year or two later or a year year and a half later you know an album came out on this label called tvt in new york and i i spent quite some time trying to license it and that was when i was working to play it again sam and actually play it again sam would have would have lent me the money to license it but of course i i guess they had far bigger fish to fry and ended mm. up deal with island yeah um, yeah and and that you know and you know of course that's how that came about of course but of course I, I'd said to Case at the beginning of our conversations that 
you know, oh, yeah, you know, that's the kind of band I'd like to sign. So, of course, in his eyes, he's obviously thinking, oh, maybe Gary could be the person to, to, to deliver us the kind of electronic um in you know the next electronic industrial nine inch nails mm-hmm. um but yeah obviously there there were a few of them doing the rounds um but um you know none you know none that really passed my way so you know the likes of stabbing westward for example the timing um, is super interesting though yeah. because given it was the early 90s i thought maybe there'd been some sort of contention around all right metallica's come out with their that with their self-titled album so now metal is like a mainstream thing it's no longer an underground thing so we've got to diversify and make it you know bring metal to the table from a rotor perspective the same time grunge is happening and providing that kind of alternative as well yeah but from what i'm seeing these things didn't happen until the the latter part of 1991 yeah so it seems like that they're actually like diversifying of their own accord as as opposed to a response to something yeah well hmm (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean you know what was interesting from my perspective um was well one weirdly enough i actually went i went i probably went far too electronic for roadrunners liking mm. um and uh i, I guess getting into 1992 um yeah you know for, for a little while everything was fine you know i i, I you know that the, the, having gone into partnership with roadrunner there was a frontline assembly album that did pretty well called tactical neural implant yeah that, that came out in 1992 mm-hmm. uh, there was also a frontline assembly side project called intermix which also yep. did i think reasonably well for what it was um and there was uh yeah and in the nursery album that did quite well and then a lot of quite underground releases that just didn't really do anything unfortunately mm-hmm. but i had frontline assembly you know and anything that they did or the guys from that band did would sell yep. but you know even now as we i'm you know as we're speaking and actually even during this chat i've been thinking of the weekly A&R meetings that would go on for an hour, hour and a half in the office. And there'd be Andy Saunders who would be going to, you know, two or three gigs a night, five nights a week. Mm-hmm. Me probably going to two gigs an entire week. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then the other guy, Dave Howell, I mean, his was a dance thing. So of course he was going clubbing, but you know, it wasn't quite the same. Right. But of course, Andy Saunders, I guess was, was trying to sign, these i guess um i mean i would probably say post grebo bands <laughs> so you know so kind of post pop release itself netatomic dustbin kind of stuff yeah yeah or mega city four those sorts of things mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and and per- for me i was actually wanting to go more purely electronic yeah. and i think really that's not ultimately that's not really what case wanted but having said that this was the time of the kind of the techno boom and sure. you know a lot of you know there was a lot of um you know post acid rave stuff coming out that wasn't a million miles away from the likes of frontline assembly mm. um if you took if you took out the you know the gruff vocals musically some of it actually wasn't that dissimilar 
Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I found myself more drawn towards the, the purest electronic music, which is why I ended up signing a band called Code, who, funny enough, I'm working with at the moment. They've reformed. Oh, cool. Uh, and, um, yeah, you know, another little band from Vancouver, a bit, a bit, a bit later on, but a little band called Sect, who I, who I really liked, um, but they were purely electronic and very much in that kind of early 90s warp yeah. records kind of vein. Um, but I was into that stuff. Mm. You, know, you know, my favorite ever band is Kraftwerk. You know, it was in yeah, 1981. Yeah. It was it was in 1981. And it, you, and, it, and it will be in 2021. You know, <laughs> so, um, you know, that that that's really I, I guess that's really where my heart lies in, in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I you know, I, I so I just digress slightly there. But that's but, right. But the um, I was talking about these weekly A&R meetings. Yeah, we'd be sitting around talking about the gigs we've been to. Um, and then Mark Palmer would read out the previous week's sales figures of all the records that had come out. Okay. You know, and there'd be these bands that, you know, I mean, obviously Sepultura is a silly one to mention because it was the biggest band on Roadrunner until 1993. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even bands that I thought were quite small, um, you know, they'd had first week sales of 8,000 or something in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I'd be lucky if most of my records were doing that worldwide over the life of a recording, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Life of release. Um, and it was a bit of a joke because it was almost like, well, Frontline Assembly, I mean, I can't give you exact figures, of course, so I, I don't even yeah. know that. If you say, well, Frontline Assembly costs 10 times as much to record as this band, but they're selling a tenth of what that band is selling. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, I, 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 I kind of felt quite bad because I thought, well, this is this is a bit ridiculous. You know, I... I thought I was responsible for for presenting some very very nice sounding professional releases to Roadrunner, but unfortunately they just did not sell anywhere near what the cheapest sounding recording of a metal band on Roadrunner was selling. This is this but speaks I to something. That, I guess that was just the market, you know. Um, it's, it's the market, but I think it's also kind of the model in in the Roadrunner sense because they're. Sign their their initial A and R budget for any new signing was five grand. Yeah, dollar that is usually five grand and down. Yeah. So I feel like the best analogy I can make for that that model is the 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 Jason Blum model. So Blumhouse Productions they make they're a, a movie studio who make horror films and they basically make about a hundred films a year, all at dirt uh, budgets. But all you need is one or two of those to break, and they've all paid for themselves. Yeah. So I think it was a similar kind of idea. I I, I, I think so too. Um, mm-hmm. And it worked. I mean, you know, who, who am I to criticise that, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, one interesting thing is, I, I'll just jump slightly here, because um, Easter Sunday, 1992, mm-hmm. um, I get a phone call. And it's a friend of mine who's actually my sleeve designer at the time, a guy called Dave Coppenhall. Right. Okay. And he said, Gary, are you already aware of this? Your office is burning down. Holy shit. And I went, what? <laughs> and, yeah, Michael's just wanted me to tell me. Now, this guy, Michael, is Michael Brook. He's a very well-known musician and producer. Right. And he lived just down the road um, in Harrow Road from, from where our offices were. In fact, he lived more or less opposite um, where Mute Records were 
We were 307 Harrow Road and Mute was 429 and Michael Brook lived over the road. Mm-hmm. And Michael had seen our office on in flames. Jesus. Uh, and um, yeah, that, that week turned out to be quite interesting because uh, we had to move into temporary accommodation and we actually moved just around the corner to where um, I think it's where bronze records had been or at least the people who ran bronze records had been. Um, Andy Saunders left the company literally the day we moved. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I won't go into any details, but if you do get hold of him and speak to him about it, ask him about that. Um, right. Okay. I will, I will press no further on that one. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it may well be that he doesn't want to talk about it, but, but you know, he, he, he left the company and I've got a feeling that Dave Howell left at the same time. I, I'm, I'm trying to recall when we moved offices, I had my own really huge office. Now, I'm not sure there was another office on that floor. Right. So I think Dave Howell might have left that same week. And so it may well be that Case had a bit of a rethink of his strategy around that time. Mm. Um, and that actually was more or less the exact week that Frontline Assembly's Tactical Neural Implant album came out. Um, so Should have been why he got the big office. <laughs> Kind of April, April, May, 1992. April 28th. April or May, 1992 was, well, yeah. obviously Easter, 92 would have been April. Um, possibly end of March, I guess, but... Um, I've got April yeah. 28th here. Was that when Easter was? Um, that's just when it was released. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, so it would have been a couple of weeks. So obviously Easter's never normally after mid-April, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it would, have been, it would have been just after that. So uh, I guess there was no way that... I mean, it, and, of course, I'd only been with Roadrunner less than a year at that point, so I guess sure. there was no way that Case was thinking of uh, getting rid of me, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, but I think, you know, there, there was a bit of... Possibly a bit of a rethink in Roadrunner's strategy then because yeah. see, two of the three UK A&R guys left, literally, mm. that, that week. Um, but not that long after a new A&R guy came in who was much more indie orientated and bearing in mind this was like the stirrings of Britpop at that time as well. Yep. Um, and his name was Miles Leonard. And, Leonard. and Miles, Miles is actually very, very well known in the industry now because he eventually became chairman of Parlophone. Right, okay. And, uh, yep. uh, you know, he ended up obviously overseeing the careers of various artists that we would talk about in our office because we shared our office for about a year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I suppose we're, you know, let's just say we would have a little chat about Kylie Minogue. Um, he ended up being her boss. It's kind of weird, kind of weird the way these things work out, you know? I think he was, if I remember rightly, he's the guy that signed the Verve, wasn't he? He, he signed, in fact, and that, that's, that's how he came into uh, Roadrunner because he had been an A and R guy at Hut Records, which was a division of Virgin. Okay. And he signed he signed the Verve when they were just called Verve. Right. right. Okay. So obviously yeah. it's his early days, and uh, funny enough, I mean I, I I mean I had been to see Verve play many many times, mostly as a support act, mm-hmm. um, and then and then Miles ended up signing them to Hut, mm-hmm. but then he got let go by Hut. Yeah. And that's how he came into Roadrunner. Fair enough. Fair enough. It definitely. So it definitely it indicates a uh, a particular brand, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so 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 obviously they you know Case obviously wanted an indie guy 
in the UK. And Miles really knew his stuff. And where Andy Saunders would go to two gigs a night, Miles would go to three or four. Wow. Um, and uh, and again, that would be just so interesting at the A&R meetings each week where he'd talk about all these bands he'd seen over the previous week or so. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to your point about the um, the business model, you know, Miles would have these bands that he'd been to see that he wanted to sign. Uh, but, of course, the deals that were being offered, none of these bands would, you know, would sign. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was probably a, a, a source of quite a bit of frustration for Miles. You know, he, he, he would he'd identify the talent, want to sign it, but then the deals couldn't get over the line because, you know, I guess they were expensive deals and, and it, it was the onset of the whole Britpop thing. And, um, you know, I guess these bands at that time for a little while were worth a lot more money. There is a... The... Or, or thought they were worth a lot more money. I mentioned earlier the um, the type of deal that that, that would typically um, uh, be on the table for every band. In the case, from what I can gather, isn't much for budging on on signing a new band in terms of how much they can give to them. What was the model budget and what was the model deal that you would give to a band when you were signing them for Roadrunner? Was it the same as previous uh, years where it was say five or six records, about five grand for um, the first album? All IP got sticks with Roadrunner for, uh, forever. No guaranteed tour support. That kind of thing. There were one or two deals like that. Yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, I'm sure you know you know how these things work. But you know, back in those days, you know, bands would go, "Oh wow, we've just signed a multi-album deal. Great." You know, mm-hmm. but it was you know the cards were loaded completely in the record label's favour. Um, and a multi-album deal could literally mean a one-album deal, couldn't it? Because if it didn't sell, the band would get dropped. Um, yeah, it seems like and, there's yeah, a, there'd, there'd be there'd, there'd be uh, there'd be an advance for the next record, but it, it would always be based on a percentage of what the f- previous one had done. Um, yeah, and if they were feeling particularly generous or, or really heard something in the demos that they thought could do a lot better, then sure, some more money would be forthcoming. I kind of get it. I, th- I think the deals that I was able to offer were a lot more generous than a lot of the straightforward death metal deals that Roadrunner are offering. What kind of uh, what kind of I, carrots would you dangle? It's a long time ago, but I, you know, and I can't really remember exact sums of money. Sure. But, but but I you know I I, I do remember some deals. Um, you know, I I'd, I'd find out what X band had been offered, and I'd think, well, that's nowhere near as generous as the band I want to sign has been offered. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my deals would get over the line and sometimes they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I always, I got on with Case. I mean, I got on with everybody at Roadrunner. Um, and I think, um, you know, it, it, it was, you know, I, th- I think I think he was desperate for it to work between us. Yeah. Um, maybe I wasn't quite so desperate. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, you know, I wanted it to work, obviously. But, um, you know, I think ultimately maybe we just went in different directions um and um you know obviously they you know they they the the whole thing that resulted in frontline assemblies millennium album that was like a two two year gestation gestation period Mm -hmm. because i think i think that because that record came out on roadrunner 
once I'd gone. Mm-hmm. But I actually went to Vancouver in March 1993 yeah. to meet with the band to discuss what this album was going to be like. And, of course, at that time, we all thought it was going to come out in 1993. Yeah. Um, and in the summer of 1993, I got a whole bunch of demos hardly any of which ended up being on the Millennium album. Mm. Um, And they ended up releasing those tracks um, by one of their side projects, which was called Noise Unit, which which was outside of Roadrunner. Okay. Um, You know, it it, it was a very, very long gestation period. So Um, when did the the full acquisition come about? How did that come about? And why? So so we, you know, we we put some more records out. for example, there was there was a there was a uh, this frontline assembly side project called Intermix. There was an album in 1993 that was pretty good and, and did yeah. okay. Um, they were also on the, the Windows XP um, setup screen. What Intermix? Yeah, yeah. Voices was uh, the music that played in the background on one of the the beta builds of XP. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know that. I bet they didn't get paid for it either. But it, it wasn't on the actual release, so I think it might have been just a developer. Yeah. I'll send you a link to that. Okay, yeah, please do. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, just sort of before quickly skipping to the full acquisition, you know, it, 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 it was, you know, this whole period was really interesting for me. And I, I, I really appreciated the skills of somebody like Monty Connor, if I'm being honest with you, because mm-hmm. it was almost like everything he touched turned to gold. And none more so than I, I remember we had a, a, a label conference in, in Amsterdam um, in I think it was May 1993, mm-hmm. and and I heard some songs from what was going to be a new album by Typo Negative. Yep. And I said, "Fuck me, that is brilliant," because yep. that that basically is taking the whole Sisters of Mercy kind of you know post punk goth thing and making it metal, and it just sounds so much more authentic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course we all we all know what happened with that record. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, the guy that did the artwork he was a fan of my label and he contacted Roadrunner because he wanted to do some sleeves to third mind. Oh, and they ended up, they ended up commissioning him to do um, the sleeve for bloody kisses. Howie Abrams had a story about the bloody kisses um, album cover as well. Apparently the uh, band initially what, just wanted a minimalist. What, what did um, he because um, uh, does that time with what I just said or not? Yeah, totally. Totally. Apparently the band were really particular about what they wanted in terms of the aesthetics. Um, in the stage shows, in the albums, in everything. Um, and what they wanted was a very minimalistic black background and just green lipstick kiss. That was it. Tapo negative bloody kisses. Howie Abrams, because he was, as well as the A&R um, head honcho, he was also the, he had he dabbled in a lot of the marketing. So he had the clout to say, that's just not going to sell. And eventually, okay. it, the, the wait, actual... Wait, wait, was it? I always thought it was Monty that signed typo was it actually howie no no monty signed them but um, oh. howie had had um the let's say in elements of the marketing part of it okay okay um so I, yeah i mean i I, pro- I probably knew that at the time it's just one of those things that gets forgotten in the in the history because i i think i i think i met the designer at the uh, new music seminar in new york in the right. summer of 1993 um, and because uh, I think he was New York based, mm-hmm. and uh, and that, that's when I that's when I was told. I think it was him that told me. Oh, I contacted Roadrunner because I wanted to do sleeves for you. 
Mm. <laughs> it was quite quite funny, but um, I I thought that record was absolutely superb. I have to say, and I I still play the um, the version of um, well Summer Breeze, but of course they retitled it to Summer Girl. Uh, that yeah, wasn't yeah. they weren't given permission to release it. I, did did you ever hear that version? Oh yeah, I, I've been listening to that album while I've been doing my research for this. Um, Bloody Kisses has been the mainstay. Yeah, I'll always you, put that on. Because on, I mean, the song sounds obviously that song's in two parts, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, because it's the uh, summer breeze stroke sets me on fire, isn't it? Yep. Um, and uh, but but when it was originally recorded, they just changed the lyrics, and it was just superb. And then I guess Seals and Croft didn't give permission for the lyrics to be changed. Mm-hmm. So they had to go back into the studio and Pete still just had to do the straight lyrics. And right. they, lo- they lost something in the vocal production. Yeah. Um, and and, the, and the, the way they played around with the lyrics, it still makes me laugh now because I, I, I would play it to people in the months before that record even came out and they'd go, bloody hell, that is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this whole... Is it Kenny Hickey lying on the sidewalk, devil music from the house next door? I mean, what a brilliant line, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's... it's and, and the, way he, the way he sang it was just superb. But but so do you know that version, or do you only know the version that ended up being on the album? I only know the version that ended up on the album. In that case, I'm, I'm going to send you an MP3 of the of the version that didn't get... get. In fact, I'll send you a WAV of the version that didn't get on. <laughs> Killer. Uh, and you'll Love see it. what I mean. I mean that—that's the version I always go back to. That it's you know that that yeah that that was the one. And I always remember having a really nice conversation with Pete Steele after we'd done a UK promo trip, and he said, "Man, I really like your office." <laughs> and, and I guess it was suitably kind of um, red and black for him, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm about to run out of time, mate. Um, listen, I uh, yeah, I was actually going to say to you, I've only got until five thirty, but if you want to continue this, because I guess we've got a few other bits should be discussed absolutely yeah i think i think we've kind of got a good halfway there maybe even a bit more but there's there's definitely some stuff from 94 and onwards that from from this point 55 minutes ago everything that's that's happened between my computer and your computer is stuff i've not known okay (laughs) so i'm I'm completely i'm i'm gonna be mining you for information as much as i can (laughs) so yes i agree we're about 50 percent between 50 55 percent of the way through i think Okay, cool. Right. I will let you know. I'll respond to that with my sort of like slots for next week. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you very, very much. I very, very much appreciate um, me stealing your time and and, uh, mining the knowledge and the experiences you had. It's been really fruitful. Well, it's kind of interesting to revisit those times occasionally. Um, Like I said, I, I, I I get asked occasionally. Yeah. Um, and um yeah fair enough the, the last i think somebody contacted me not very long ago and said oh i had no idea you'd worked with noise records um and I'd, I'd done a long interview a couple of years ago for uh what ended up being a book about noise records um and you know i worked with noise between 96 and 2000 mm-hmm. um so i mean that's another whole trail of metal <laughs> yeah 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 a couple of years after the Roadrunner years, <laughs> when when I, maybe I wasn't quite so uh, naive, perhaps. Um, you can't get rid of Mel. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, drop, drop me a line when you're free, and we'll uh, we'll pick the story up again. Will do, mate. Thanks very much. All right. All the best. See you, Jim. Bye.
Okay. Um, I was just doing research on another interview I've got tomorrow, so I had to troll back through and find uh, the stuff I was writing down from last week. So yeah. where were we? We were in the autumn of 1993, um, and we were talking about it. We were comparing the version um, of Summer Breeze to Summer Girls. Oh, yeah. Did you get the to listen to it? I did, yeah. Actually, I, I put them side by side, and it was it's kind of interesting. Like, um, not only obviously the lyrics different, but some of you pointed out with Peter's vocal performance, and I thought it was the mix was different as well, which I thought really interesting. Yeah. The, yeah. the version you sent over is actually more consistent with the rest of the album because it's the band yeah. that produced it, and it, I think because Peter's doing a very low sort of almost talking kind of vocal, the gain is right up, so it sounds like you're inside his mouth. You don't get that in the, in the album version. Exactly. I, I mean, I think if you didn't if you didn't know the version I'd sent you, you wouldn't think of it too much. But yeah. but, once, but once you've heard that one, you think, oh yeah, that's really got um, you know real depth and substance to it. Totally. Where the version that ended up on the final album, it, it sounds a bit rushed. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's interesting because the um, the bridge into "Set Me on Fire" they have like a little sort of breakdown bit, and they're still singing "Summer Girls." Yeah. Um, on the album version. So I guess that was a little bit of an FU because that wasn't the... Um, God, what was the band called? There was, it wasn't the original band's song by that point. So they had... It was a legally distinct song that they were doing, Set Me On Fire, so I guess they could say what they wanted. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Ah. So where were you in terms of... Um, I think the question that led, that led to this bit was how... Roadrunner ended up acquiring Third Mind in its entirety. And then we started doing it kind of like season by season, story by story. Oh, by the way, I did reach out to um, Mr. Saunders. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, speaking to him around about this time next week. Okay, cool. So you mentioned you'd been speaking to me, yeah? Yes, I dropped your name in there. I hope you don't mind. Cool. No, that's fine. Absolutely fine. So when was the, when, what was the date of the acquisition then? Was it in 94 or were we still, was it in 93? No, so basically what happened was, um, uh, well, actually, we moved we moved offices again, sort of further to West London to Acton, um, and that was after the fire. Well, after the fire, which was Easter Sunday, nineteen ninety two, we moved around the corner. It was still in uh, Westbourne Park, so uh, you know, quite close to Harrow Road where we'd been before. Um, but then I'm trying to think it was either the very end of 93 or very beginning. I think it was, I think it was towards the end of 93. We moved offices again to Acton mm -hmm. and um, it was actually at the end of April of 94 mm -hmm. um, that uh, I had a conversation with Case and that was the point where um, they acquired my 50% of Third Mind. Did that take you by surprise when Case approached you with that? Um, I would say yes, but at the same mm -hmm. time, bearing in mind what I was telling you last week, you know, about sales figures, yeah, um, all kinds of different things, really. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think really the fact that you know, I think at that point, uh, Frontline Assembly was still finishing the album that became Millennium. Sure. Um, it had taken an absolute age to put together. 
And when you compare it to, you know, as we were discussing last week, you know, the, 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 you know, some of the metal bands that were costing a fraction to record, but yeah, so many more records than anything that I was involved with. So yeah. from that point of view, and obviously with the benefit of hindsight as well, um, I suppose I should say, no, I wasn't in the least surprised, but at the time when you're kind of in the middle of it, yeah, sure. You know, and it, and, and it really, you know, it was kind of my life, you know, it's what I'd been doing since I was uh, 19 years old. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I guess I associated myself with my record label very, very closely. Mm. Um, you know, so, so from that point of view, um, uh, you know, really it shouldn't have been a surprise whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, I suppose to, a, to an extent, you know, I, possibly was also feeling a little bit burnt out you know as a label it had taken me right through my 20s um i mean i you know i was i was 30 years old at that time um Mm. and 31 in august 1994 Mm. um and you know there was certainly in the weeks after it happened i mean i i mean to be honest with you straight away i thought right i'm going to start another company sure and I'm going to make it a label management company and a PR company because, you know, I think one of the things, one of the things that I missed really was that when I went into bed with Roadrunner, certainly after the first six months or so, the press for my releases started being delegated to in-house publicists. Right. Okay. And you know, because I was a one-man operation, it wasn't what I was used to. Mm. I read all the music papers. I mean, obviously in those days there were, you know, there were nowhere near as many as there are now. And of course, there was no such thing as the in- well, obviously there was the internet, but uh, there there weren't a proliferation of websites. You know, there weren't any yeah. really. You know, it wasn't a consumer choice really. It was it was just where people went to type things. Yeah, and it, and in fact, there wasn't even email. Um, yeah. Because, uh, in fact, I, I remember, um, sort of, I suppose, fast forwarding a few months, but uh, within a month or two of me, um, you know, leaving Third Mind Roadrunner, um, I gained my first client under my new company, mm-hmm. which at the time was called Tora Company, which is uh, Japanese, T O R A with an exclamation mark company. Okay. And, um, uh, the first client I acquired were some old friends of mine, and it was a Canadian label called Network. So it's N E T T W E R K. Okay. And I remember at Christmas 1994, one of the owners of that company, because they're well, they remain based in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, he visited London, and we met up to discuss strategy for 1995. And he gave me a laptop computer, which obviously was a, a very early Apple laptop. Okay. And showed me email for the first time. <laughs> and in fact, I had email before anybody else I knew. Yeah. Um, and no, not, no one speak to. And not only that, they even had a website. And I didn't know anybody with a website. And all my friends were really impressed when, yeah. I, when I showed them how it worked. <laughs> so, awesome. so, so, that, yeah, so that was the end of 1994. Um, so obviously backtrack a few months then yeah you know I I kind of you know the way I looked at it was I'm being given a fresh start 
uh and i changed quite you know i changed quite a few things that year i mean i moved house uh i even got married for for a while um and um in fact i remember this is probably a bit too much detail but i remember <laughs> case agreed to be a guarantor on our flat that we <laughs> when I got, awesome. I got married so, so that, that was only three months after i'd left uh third mind roadrunner you know so obviously we, we we remained very on very good terms and i do remember him saying to me i feel really bad doing this but economics is economics you know or words to that effect yeah um and you know and i just thought yeah you know i suppose really i shouldn't be so surprised hey it's a chance for a fresh start and you yeah. know and it also meant I didn't need to get up at, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, and, you know, it meant I was working from home, you know, which which certainly prior to the Roadrunner years, I had I had always worked from home. And I'd always had I'd always had the good discipline of being up early in the morning and being at my desk by, you know, 9 a.m., 9.30 or whatever. And sure. Obviously, working my own hours, which actually, at the age of fifty-seven, now that's exactly what I do, <laughs> and, have, and have done for several years again. You know, um, so yeah. At the time, I, I I think I looked at it as yeah, it's probably run its course. It's time for a fresh start. Um, I suppose also um, maybe there'd been I wouldn't say a familiar familiarity breeds contempt. But as I hinted last week, you know, during the, during my time with Roadrunner, my interest in industrial music had kind of remained at the more electronic end of things. Yeah. And obviously there were bands like Nine Inch Nails doing really great work, you know, approaching it from a, you know, by well, I suppose Trent Reznor did initially approach it from a, you know, I suppose what would now be called alternative rock viewpoint, but you know, yeah. you know, I think last week I told you he sent me his first ever demo. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, and it's very kind of Depeche Modi in many many ways. You know, it was very electronic, mm-hmm. um, and of course he, you know, he later guitared it up to the max. Yeah, yeah. So of course, 1994, I guess that was the second Nine Inch Nails album came out that year, and and that was obviously the real crossover record for him. Yeah, I mean that was a great record, but but how many bands were doing it that well? You know, I nobody. Do you think uh, unless we hear saying there were a lot of bands that came along around that time, um, but my interest had gone more towards the, the you know the, the purely craft working side of uh, the harder edge industrial acts rather than yeah you know rather than the the rock side of industrial now i take it all on my own stride you know now for example and for many many years now one of my clients has been metropolis records in the u.s mm. so i actually worked quite a few records by bands like kmfdm sure you know yeah. which which was a band i was also a fan of in the late 80s and early 90s and if if, if they'd been available sure i'd have liked to have signed them you know yeah <laughs> um but again, they were one of the best at that kind of thing. Do you think uh, that's why, I mean, last week you were saying, first of all, you were a little bit too electronic for a Roadrunner's liking, but also that Case was kind of gutted that it didn't work out. Would, do you think that's because there was not an expectation, but kind of like he wanted to incubate like a, a more metal electronic, that Nine Inch Nails kind of vibe? And he, he wanted yeah, the, yeah, the Roadrunner to yeah. be the genesis of that. He would definitely, he would definitely have wanted me to sign that kind of act. Mm. Um, yeah. 
You know, uh, one record we didn't mention last week, or at least I don't think we did, and this happened quite quickly after I um, got involved with Roadrunner, or at least in my in my in my mind it is. Maybe it was a year after I joined them, but um, uh, uh, Reese Fulber from Frontline Assembly became very fast friends with the guys from Fear Factory, who of course yeah. were a new signing to Roadrunner. And, yes. uh, and, there, and there was that mini album that came out, um, you know, which was basically Frontline Assembly remixing some Fear Factory tracks. Correct. Yeah, there was. Um... And, I, and, I, and I have to be honest and say that that was not down to me. You know, I think that was probably Monty Connor or certainly somebody else at Roadrunner US saying, hey, why don't we put these two bands together and see what happens? And, and of course, that was that was quite a, I think that was quite an influential release, actually. Uh, that um, which was it? It wasn't Soul of a New Machine. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Fear is the Mind Killer, I think. That's it, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a mid-album, and I think that was 1992? Uh, April 14th, 1993. Ah, okay, that's when it came out. Okay, but obviously I heard it in 90... It would have been recorded in 1992. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, of course, you know, from that point, Reese Forber became the producer for Fear Factory as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they tend to have a they tend to have a um, a pretty productive relationship, which is good because I believe they had a bit of a tumultuous relationship with their original producer Colin Richardson. Yeah, so I, 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 I don't think I've ever met Colin Richardson. I mean, obviously, I knew all about him at the time, um, but uh, he's he's not somebody I ever um, I ever had any kind of relationship with at all. Mm. Yeah, it seems Reese might have been able to bridge certain understanding or gaps in relationships on that on that particular front. Yeah, it's a nice product of of what Third Mind brought to Roadrunner, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so I think maybe uh, maybe the thinking was there that possibly I could bring some stuff like that to the label. Yeah, but it just wasn't my wasn't my thing. Yeah, yeah. Did you at the time? Do you think it was, in fact, maybe even in hindsight as well, when Case came to you with the with the deal to to take the fifty percent? Was it a good deal on paper without obviously sharing numbers? Was it uh, worth the roster? You mean, you, I guess you, you mean in nineteen ninety one? Oh no, no, as in the remaining fifty. Oh, the remaining fifty percent. Sorry. Um, yeah. uh, you mean was that a good deal for me? Yeah, were you like, you know, this this you didn't think you were you didn't think your your labels were was being ripped off by that, you know, that number on the piece of to, paper. To, to be honest with you, I what I was saying about wanting the fresh start, that probably overrode everything. Right. And you know, who knows, maybe Case even sensed it at the time, you know. Um uh but um no, I mean, you know, I suppose in retrospect, I would have done things very differently. And 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 even before hooking up with Roadrunner in the first place, in retrospect, I may have done things differently. But I, I felt I'd been backed into a corner and I'd, I'd worked so hard on my label mm. and just turned 27 and had a mountain of debt, um, having worked really hard. You know, yeah, sure. that was just before I went into bed with Roadrunner in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, three years later, when Case says, well, you know, I'd like to offer you this. And obviously, Third Mind will just become an in-house imprint of Roadrunner. 
you know, it wasn't very much money he was offering me. But I guess at the time, the label wasn't worth a lot because, you know, as has happened anyway, I mean, he just moved Frontline Assembly from Third Mind onto Roadrunner. Mm. And any other records that were still to come out did, but nothing else did. And then they just, you know, uh, made the label defunct. Could they not just have bought the um could not sorry get my words out could they not just have bought frontline assembly from the contract with third mind instead uh i suppose in effect that's what they did yeah um but also you know i think by that point the only other act i had that sold in decent quantities and certainly not in the uk were in the nursery right but the deal within the nursery, I think, was a five-year licensing deal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that, and that was on the four or five records that came out during that period. Yeah. So, all of their releases were always going to revert back to the band before before the end of the nineties, anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, it wasn't worth a hell of a lot to Roadrunner in the long term. There was another band, um, which was Third Mind, but then became Roadrunner because they were making money and this was um the moon seven times so that's another yeah, small well, success story that they were a great band actually really really yeah. good band uh you know i'd had a relationship with uh with the main guy henry frain since the mid 80s actually mm-hmm. uh and, and actually i still remember um this was just before i i uh, became part of Roadrunner. It's beginning in 1991. Actually, it was. I think it was. The, remember, I said to you that um, Frontline Assembly came over to tour, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this was like April 91, just before the uh, uh, before I went, you know, signed my deal with Roadrunner. Uh, and you've got to bear in mind, Bill Lieb from Frontline Assembly is about six foot six. Right. Henry Frain from the Moon Seven Times is mm-hmm. about six foot eight. <laughs> but he's really thin right bill bill lieb is you know i mean bill lieb um will put most guys half his age to shame right i mean sure. he he still goes to the gym several times a week uh yeah i always thought bill lieb was like the kind of the clint eastwood of industrial you know right. good looking guy really you know really looked after himself uh but I, I remember um, going to see Front 242 at the Astoria with mm. with Bill Lieb and Henry Frayne, and it was hilarious. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not tiny, but I, I just I just remember them either side of me, and they didn't really get on. You know, they were you know to, into totally different types of music or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's just I had these giants either, either side of me. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that was quite funny. But yeah, you know, I, I think I think um, the Moon Seven Times. Uh, I actually forgot that their second album came out on Roadrunner. I guess the first one was on Third Mind, right? But the mm-hmm. second one was Roadrunner. Correct. Yeah, well, that made sense because I think the guy that the guy that was the general manager of Roadrunner in the US, Doug Keogh. Yeah, still I there. Think, I think is he. Still behind the desk. Have you have you spoken to Doug? I can't find any details. In fact, you know what? I only know that he sat where Monty Connor was sat in the office back right. when Monty Connor was working there. So geographically, I have an idea where I could find him, 
but no means to contact him. Right. Okay. Now, I love Doug to bits. He was a great guy. Yeah. But I think he was a really big fan of the men's seven times. So he may well have been the prime mover in, in having their second album come out on Roadrunner. Oh, right, right, right. It's an American cool. band anyway. Yeah. Um, so that might have made sense to, to do it that way. Uh, and I think there were a couple of other people in the New York office that, that really liked that band. Yeah, they, they, they definitely came from more of a kind of um, certainly a, a 4AD-ish sensibility. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember... Um, uh in fact yeah i I remember there there were a couple of conversations about that band um because i i i had put out an earlier record uh, a compilation um henry frame's previous band had been called area Mm -hmm. and i and i put a compilation of theirs out on on third mind in 1990 oh okay um and um in fact um i got the uh a guy called chris big who was one of the in-house designers at 4ad part of 23 envelope um he he did the sleeve for that and it totally makes sense because it had that yeah had that vibe to it you know that kind of um i guess what became post-rock yeah yeah um, but in a very indie sort of way the very of their time i think yeah, yeah. sometimes i i think so uh, funnily enough, uh, another very slight digression, but uh, just before I went into bed with Roadrunner, I had been talking to a band called Bark Psychosis, who I who I thought were fantastic, and uh, mm. I really wanted to sign them. Uh, and um, weirdly enough, they ended up signing to Virgin. Oh, okay. And, and the person that signed them was Miles Leonard's brother. Oh, okay. Um, because I guess while Miles Leonard was at Hutt, yep. even before Miles joined Hutt, his older brother was an A&R at Virgin. The ones in the family then. Yeah. Uh, and as I understand it, Miles' older brother got sacked, partly because he signed Bark Psychosis, who, who I think became one of the worst selling bands in Virgin's history. <laughs> but honestly, I thought they were great. And I thought the album they released that he was responsible for was a really good record. Mm. And you know, in retrospect, actually, I think it's um, it's become it's become known as a really good record. Uh, in fact, I think um, you know the label Fire. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the person that runs that now, he's he's somebody that I employed um, back in two thousand. Right. Okay. And um, uh, he loved that record, and he licensed it to uh, to Fire a couple of years ago. So uh, yeah, again, what goes around? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, a weirdly incestuous business, isn't it? Yeah, but anyway, so getting so getting back to that whole 1994 thing, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, uh, you know, the rare times I do look back on it, and of course I've been thinking about it in this last week or so while we've been, talking, <laughs> uh, but I do from time to time. Um, you know, I do think, well, yeah, I would have done a few things a bit differently. Sure. I think anything you do in life you could think that um and in the end you don't really want to regret too much because you beat yourself up about it all the time right yeah and that employ that that applies to all aspects of your life yeah i mean one of the the better things that seems to come away from these kind of conversations i've been having about the roadrunner stuff is you know it didn't work out however i made a lot of friends yeah 
and yeah. that seems to be the th- the riding thing that goes through everything and i think that's pretty nice i think i think in my own case i'm still here you know mm. uh, and you know when i started third mind you know i was a kid you know it's like well wow i've got a chance to do this full time for a while it's better than working in a bank you know mm. um and here we are 36 37 years later i'm still doing it i mean okay it's changed slightly but you know somehow i get by yeah i like a lot of the music i work on even the stuff i'm not particularly keen on i know how to promote it i think i do quite a good job i think if i Mm. didn't people wouldn't employ me um and yeah you know i'm 57 i'm still here and i'm still doing it so you know i i who would have thought that in 1983 you know yeah um so to to bring this ship into the station i've got three industry specific questions which kind of which made me i was reviewing my notes from last week and i was like yeah actually you know what i might ask a bit more about this and then uh, i've got two questions which are just things you know before we close out sure yeah that's actually actually first before then when you uh when case gave you the deal to acquire third mind wholesale uh how did the bands take it were they like oh oh uh good question good question actually um i think with frontline assembly it was fine because they had been talking to Doug Keogh quite a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose it helped that, well, they weren't on the same time zones. They were obviously three hours apart because obviously Vancouver and New York. Um, but um, I suppose, I, you know, that I think that was all right. Um, and I guess Reese had probably had direct conversations with people like Monty Connor anyway because of working with Fear Factory. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that was a problem with those guys. Um, in the nursery, they actually had an album ready to come out, uh, more or less, when I when I got out. Okay. And part of my deal with Roadrunner uh, was because I was starting my new company, and part of it was going to be PR. Mm. I got Roadrunner to agree to pay me a bit extra, so I could do the press on that in the nursery album. Oh, cool! Uh, and that album was called Anatomy of a Poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I think it was, um, <laughs> and that came out in the autumn of 1994, so a few months after I left, um, and that was the end of their deal with Roadrunner anyway. Right, so okay. I don't, I don't think they were too worried about it. Or sorry, that was the end of their deal with Third Mind Roadrunner as mm-hmm. a Roadrunner. So, so I I, I maintained um, an interest uh, from that point of view, uh, and actually. Um, I think within a couple of weeks of me leaving, uh, yeah, so I, I think my last day was the 30th of April, 94. And a couple of weeks later, I went to a festival in Germany within the nursery. So, you know, obviously we, we were still on really good terms and sure. they knew I was going to be still involved with them for a few months. And they played the big um, the big goth festival. Um, I forgot what it's called um uh oh gothic wave treffen it's still it's a really popular thing it's right. obviously it didn't happen this year but it's a really huge thing and it happens in leipzig every year never knew this yeah no it's a huge festival um oh. uh, i guess it's europe's biggest actually for for that kind of thing mm. um but but it's very it's very much the yeah you know the kind of old school goth industrial um and still is Oh, I mean, one you get, thing you get bands like Decrypts play it, for example. 
Um, okay. But, um, you know, that's that's probably the, about the most crossover you would get, um, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think whether Ramstein have ever played it, because that, that, <laughs> that would have been a really obvious one. But, yeah, uh, have been on brand, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but probably Ramstein might have been regarded as too metal to play a festival like that. Yeah, they were, they were around for them, weren't they? I can't remember when their first album was. I'm sure yeah, it was me. I, yeah, I I remember because um, uh, again, by 1995, uh, I had three or four clients, uh, and one of them was a big German industrial label that mm. Frontline Assembly signed to as soon as they were dropped by Roadrunner. Okay. So so by 1995, I was actually involved with Frontline Assembly again. <laughs> Uh, and I did the press on their album immediately after they left Roadrunner. Which, right. which was called Hardwired and came out in 1995. Ah. Again, it all comes back around. And, and, and funnily enough, uh, just after that, I started working with Noise Records. And one of the first bands I worked on, Sisters to Do Publicity, was a group called Cubanate, who had okay. been around for a few years. And actually, to be honest with you... I, are probably quite relevant to this conversation or, or our conversation half an hour ago because Cubanate were one of these bands that that for me in 1993 mm-hmm. um, I would see them play a lot in London but they were too guitar industrial metal for me okay whereas two years later I was doing their press and thinking wow what a great project to work on yeah, uh, and I'd always got on really well with Mark Mark Heal, the main man, and I've worked with him many many times since. And I, I really I worked on a record for him last year, cool. um, and I went to visit him at home in uh, San Francisco last year as well. Oh wow! Uh, uh, and um, yeah, he, he trip. yeah. Well, my my son lives near San, near San Francisco. Um, I um, yeah, uh, and Mark Heal is actually um, over there because his wife is working for um, Apple. Oh, cool! So they're they're living quite close to Apple HQ at the moment. Um, wow! So yes, yeah, so I went to visit him last year, but he, you know, a band like that is a band I probably should have signed in 1993. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. And I, and I know you're a bit young for this, but they they did get quite a lot of n- notoriety because they supported Carcass on a tour and went down really, really badly. Oh, okay. But obviously, you know, if you're not going to go down well as a support, you want to go down badly, right? The, the, the worst thing you can have is for people not to care either way. Yeah. Uh, and it's just obviously musically they were poles apart, and that's why they went down so badly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you won't be too good. But a lot of people in the press really liked Cubanate, which I found out when I started doing their press in 1996. Sure. Beginning of 1996. Yeah. Um, and funnily enough, uh, the first two bands I worked on for Noise were Cubanate and Manhole, which is uh, Terry B. Terry B. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Manhole had to change their name uh, just after their album came out, so they became Tura Satana. Uh, okay. And I and I carried on working with them for another couple of years. And then they eventually became my ruin. Right. Okay. Terry, Terry B was an absolute mouthpiece. So for yeah. me as a publicist, she was brilliant. <laughs> uh, and I think she liked me because I was very non-metal. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that, you know, her band were, you know, they were, they kind of gravitated towards the goth metal thing. And, 
I mean, she came out to my flat a couple of times and I think she really liked the fact I was into really different things. Mm. But there was some kind of meeting point in there as well. You yeah, know, she could do the talking for you on the metal side yeah. of stuff. And it, and it wasn't it wasn't that obvious thing where, you know, I think sometimes artists don't really like it when uber fans are working for them. Mm. Could it, yeah, you can you can get to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say obstacles. It's like, you know, it's not quite like the uh, <laughs> you think of that brilliant episode of Alan Partridge where he's got that fan who um, kidnaps him. Do you remember yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, it's not picture quite, everywhere. I, I I do sometimes think of that thing of oh I'm just a fan, you know, and you got <laughs> you got you got these people that are working for artists. They know they know more about the artist than the artist knows about themselves. You yeah, know? yeah. I think sometimes the artist might be a bit uncomfortable with that. <laughs> mm. So uh, there was no danger of that with me and uh, and um, and Terry B, but uh, but we got on really well. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to to press you about about noise records, just because there's so many there's so many bands there that are sort of within my wheelhouse. That, yeah, uh, I think I'll, I'll, I might yeah, have to say that for another, another time. Another time, I'm quite happy to have another conversation about that. Yeah. As well, but uh, so yeah. So uh, did I just start? Did I just answer that last question? I know, I know, I digressed on to keep. Um, yeah, yeah. It was it was about how the bands took the news. Yeah, and, uh, so so I think it was fine because by that point there weren't that many bands anyway. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I think probably, you know, for the Moon Seven Times, for example, Henry Fain, he knew the score. You know, I think he knew I was having a bit of a, you know, you know, a little bit of a hard time of it. And, mm. you know, again, he was dealing directly with the New York office a bit. And I, I think, you know, I think it was fine. I think I think they survived, you know. Yeah, what I'll do is I'll send you two podcasts Um from our i'm calling it a sister podcast it's called the meep meep podcast um and it's literally a guy called ryan rainbow and he's going through every roadrunner album from 1994 onwards and he's sitting down with people and talking about them so it's just by by coincidence i've taken on this project we're talking about the business side and the story of roadrunner he's doing every album one by one okay he did one on the moon seven times um the roadrunner album being seven equals 49 yeah Don Gerard, um, who I think was the bass player. My, the, it's mostly all my dealings with, were with Henry Frain, the yeah. guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Frontline Assembly with Reese, and that hey. came out ooh, today. That's, that's hey. the newest one. So oh, I'll send you both those. Oh, yeah, I'd like to hear that. For, I'd like to hear them both for sure. Don Gerard, actually, I do now remember the name, but I didn't, I didn't really deal with him at all as far as I'm aware. Sure. sure. Just... Uh, before the next question, I do remember that the very, I think, the week after I left Roadrunner, there was a label summit held in London. Right. And I remember meeting up with everyone just to say goodbye. Oh, cool. And um, I've got a feeling that was the week that they put the first Machine Head album into production because that came out that summer, didn't it? Uh, Burn My Eyes in 94, yeah. yeah. Yeah, did it come out in August? August 9th, 94. Yeah, so yeah, exactly, yeah. That, I, I remember that. that, that came, <laughs> yeah, that came out around about the same week as the In the Nursery album, I think. Um, and, and actually, the other band I should mention here as well because I hadn't, you know, I had been talking to a band called Code, Ever since yeah. 
between 90 or 91 and I thought they were great but I I took them away from their very kind of ultra Voxian uh, kind of pop songs Mm -hmm. towards the more kind of ambient techno area which I think had to be done at the time you know uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't have got the time of day from anybody if they'd stayed where they were or you know with when I first started talking to them but you know, they they were also they had just recorded an album, and I had spoken to them about possibly managing them, mm-hmm. um, and they they started being A and R'd by Miles Leonard because of course he was still at Roadrunner for a year or so sure. after, after I left. So yeah. I do remember a couple of times in the summer of '94 going to uh, visit them because um, they lived on the uh well they're on the uh, the other side of kent to where i moved back to obviously at the time i was still living in london mm-hmm. but um i remember uh if i think if I th- thinking about it i think miles took me down there in his car and, and we drove back into london again afterwards uh, a couple of times so yeah he 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 and them for a while and i think they were quite happy with that because he was a great guy very affable knew his stuff he liked the band you know yeah um and uh, so i guess he was still at roadrunner for a little while after that code album came out but of course that kind of came and went without really doing anything and they got dropped right okay um and then in 1995 i started working with them again because uh one of my clients uh, really liked them you can't get away from uh, oh, uh we, we, we actually got them a couple of shows supporting gary newman and and um yeah you know we we you know i carried on work with them for a while um so yeah, yeah it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I guess I haven't, I haven't really thought about that aspect of it very much, but certainly within a year of leaving Roadrunner, I was back working with a lot of the people that I had just stopped working with. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's quite funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's, probably, it's probably why you don't think of your time with uh, uh, Roadrunner that often, not because it's like a, it's not because it's contentious in any way, but because it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a period in time when you're still speaking to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. Yeah. And also financially, you know, I think, you know, when I, when I started with them, obviously they got me out of the hole because I'd managed to accrue quite a lot of debt running the label and had this big falling out with play it again, Sam. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, Slight aside, we were talking last week about who was signing typo. Um, Cause I mentioned Howie Abrams and his input onto the bloody kisses cover. Um, And you mentioned, was it Monty or was it Howie? And I was like, it was Monty. I thought Monty had signed Typo. That's correct. However, um, there was a bit of a story as to how they ended up being signed to Roadrunner. So Pete Seale had his hardcore band, or his crossover thrash band, if you want to call it that, uh, Carnivore, from 94 through to 97, oh, sorry, 84 to 87, whenever it was. Yeah. And they split up. um, And what happened was... Pete was still writing songs and shopping them around other labels and Case got wind of it and sent him a cease and desist and it turns out they had him on some sort of retainer. Okay. So technically he wasn't, he didn't sign again to Roadrunner. I, I, this, is the, this is the question. Is, is there such a thing as like you have a deal with a band as a legal entity but is it bound to a particular person? I think it's worth mentioning that if, if 
yeah. if what Pete was doing at the time was shit and not like typo, I think Roadrunner wouldn't have bothered sending in like a, a cease and desist. But it seems that when he signed with Carnival, there was something keeping him to Roadrunner if he wanted to continue making music after Carnival. Yeah, I mean, obviously you do get that with certain contracts. Um, that, that, right. That the band members are signed individually and collectively. Um, so that if one leaves, then the label has the first first dibs on their uh, on the next project. Interesting. Is there is there a name for that? Is there a name for that clause? Uh, is it just a retainer. I'm sure there is, but I can't think what it is. Um, and and of course you do get, you know, there are le- you know leaving member clauses. It might even be called a leaving member clause. Mm. Um, and and uh, and I, and I guess lawyers will will sometimes argue that well if they've left they've left and they can't be party to the contract anymore, but but of course you know I'm sure from a label's point of view they would any label really would think well what's to stop a band from leaving individually one a month for four months yeah. and just signing to another label under a different name. Yep. Do you know what I mean? So, so I think it has to be in there, and I, w- I would certainly understand that from a, you know, from a label background. Um, but they're they're definitely it might yeah, like I say it might even be called a leaving member clause. That's interesting. That I just want to know if that was like a, a an actual practice, and it makes sense. Yeah, that that's that's the story of typo. So I guess we could say like on technicality, it was Monty that brought him back or brought him in. But I think those were the specific circumstances which brought typo. Um, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more technical sort of like industry question. One of the big things I, I try and figure out is where the companies are in a certain point of time. Now, obviously, in the nineties, it's already got its foothold. It's already doing its thing. Um, but at the start, uh, one thing Case was doing was effectively all the heavy lifting, as you know, of the distribution throughout Europe. So I was wondering, how does a distribution deal operate? Is there money up front? When let's say like Case is going to the US and he's um, sitting down with important records in New York and saying, look, I've got these bands, I've got Merciful Fate, I've got uh, Jaguar and I've got Whiplash. Can I distribute these into into the States? Is there usually a lump sum which important need to take on or is uh, are there is, is, is their consideration in that contract all on the back end as these records are being sold? Because I'm trying to understand if like but, Case went in with capital or not. So in other words, if you, I mean, usually in my experience, you you talk to a distributor and you say, right, I've got these records coming out. Can you distribute them? Um, and that distributor will either say yes or no. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might go to that distributor and say, well, we would really like to work with you, but we want you to give us 20,000 quid up front, let's say, um, uh, because I want to do this marketing, this advertising, uh, give this band this tour support, blah, 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 blah. Um, now, I must admit, for me personally, I've I've never seen an advance from a distributor, right? But I know they happen. So it's interesting how you say that because I wouldn't have thought that the distributor. When when I was label managing a uh, in in ninety five, one of my clients uh, was a, a an indie label called Deviant Records, okay, mm. which was actually started by. Uh, a really old friend of mine who unfortunately died um, in 2007, mm-hmm. but he was he was one of the pe- people who also started um, a company called well the company was called World's End, but they they started a a compilation series called Volume, which was 
basically every two or three months a compilation CD with a CD-sized book of about 200 pages, which were full of interviews with all the bands that were on the CDs. Oh, cool. Um, and they were quite successful. I mean, they, they, they had best part of 20 issues. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but he started a, a label called Deviant to put out electronic music. Um, and I know that he got an advance from a distributor because this was just before I started working with him. And we ended up spending a pile of money putting on a promotional show in um, Paddington Station. Right, okay. Uh, for a project called Node, which was actually uh, this kind of very tangerine, dreamlike uh, studio project of two very well-known producers, uh, one of them being Flood uh, and the other one, Ed Buller, um, you know, who at the time was having a lot of success with Suede and Pulp. Yeah. Um, and of course, Flood, as you know, is a producer of Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, bloody bloody blah. Yeah. Um, so we, we ended up spending a load of money on that promotional event, and I know he got the money from the distributor, and I guess the distributor um, thought, well, you know, yeah, it'd be great to be part of this and because this event will help to sell the record and we'll be selling records and making distribution fees off it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, of course, you do, you know, you do get advances from well some some labels get advances from distributors if they've got something the distributor really wants i have thought it'd be the other way around in my head it would be the label that pays a distributor no because it's a service and vendor right um i it it possibly happens but but i've never known it to happen so in a standard transaction uh let's say let's take the case and and the important records example i'm i'm sat in um, iowa somewhere and I buy Merciful Fate from Important Records for $10. Yeah. That money's gone straight to the shop. The yeah. shop gives, as presumably given, $5 to Important to get it. Yeah. Does the label get anything of that five? Well, what normally happens, just come at this from a slightly different angle, okay? Uh-huh. So when you sign a distribution deal, um, you generally are paying between 16% and 25% distribution fee. Depending right, okay. On power, okay. So what you say is, right, this record is going to sell for 10 quid at HMV. Mm-hmm. Right. So for it to sell for 10 quid at HMV, HMV have to buy it from the distributor for six quid. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe a bit less actually, but let's just say for argument's sake, six quid. Sure. Okay. Um. So the distributor, in effect, let's say takes twenty percent of that six quid. Mm-hmm. Um. So they're taking their what one pound twenty, and four eighty goes back to the label. Right. Okay. And that's basically the way the way it works. Okay. Right. Okay. Awesome. That's I'm not very, starting a label, by the way. I'm just genuinely curious. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it because there's all sorts of other things involved as well. But that, in effect, that's what it is. Um, so when you're when you're when you're setting up a record for release, you set a distribution price with the distributor because you you more or less know what you're going to get back. Sure. But of course, you know the likes of Amazon and HMV, they get really heavy discounts. Sure. Yeah, because they're mainstays. And then the bigger indie stores, 
they get a slightly smaller discount. And of course, you've got the really small shops don't really have much bargaining power. You know, they don't really get much discount at all. Yeah. Um, but that's 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 the way it works. Awesome. That just makes it, it just helps me sort of paint that picture of, of what Case was doing. Yeah. So when you're saying that Case, so did Case actually pay a distributor to distribute his records? Not that I know of. It's just uh, it's in in my head it was bizarre to me that if that if that if that had worked like that. Yes, because because in my head it would have um, if I if I was starting a record label and I didn't have any distribution, I'd be like right. Well, the first obstacle to get over is get some money to pay a distributor to to vend me the service of distributing my products. That's how I saw it, which is obviously the wrong way around. Well, it's funny, you know, because these days maybe that does happen from time to time. You know, if you've got if you've got the money available and you're a new startup, and of course distributors are being offered labels all the time. Mm. Um, and if you're that desperate to get into the market, you might say to the distributor, you know, here's some cash, obviously, and then when they've sold the record, you get your money back, right? Yeah. yeah. But I've never known it to happen like that. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on speaking to the head of a small indie label from Manchester over the next few weeks. So I might ask him that exact question. Yeah. I have never known a label to pay a distributor up front to distribute their records. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay, let's bring this into let's bring this this ship in. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. So, yeah. <laughs> Three days from Halloween. Have you seen a ghost? <laughs> what, ever. <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah. Any any paranormal experiences? This is literally a seasonal question I've been asking uh, everyone this month. Okay. Um. I. This is tense. I don't think I've ever seen a ghost. You don't think? Yes, I've had some weird experiences. Um, but they don't necessarily revolve around Halloween. Um, What's the weirdest one? <laughs> um, the weirdest one I still think about is... Um, Funnily enough, until I was 23, I still lived with my parents, right? I, I mean, I had, you know, I was, I did move away for a few months and then went back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was probably 1984 and I'd been out into Canterbury, which was where I used to hang out and eventually moved to actually when I did move out of my parents. Yep. And um, because the last bus home was quite early and there'd generally be, parties going on mm. i once walked i walked home from canterbury a few times either really late at night or in a few on a few occasions first thing the following morning sure and there was a, a breaker's yard um going down this hill um on a country lane mm-hmm. and there was always an alsatian or possibly even two alsatians that would suddenly, if you were walking past, they'd run to the front and start barking. Right. Um, like in the yard. Um, and very, very early, so we're t- probably talking like five o'clock in the morning or something, uh, on, a sat- on a Sunday morning, walking home from Canterbury, and it's daylight, and I walk past this breaker's yard, and there were 30 or 40 Alsatians <laughs> all barking at me as I scampered past 
<laughs> I've mentioned this to a few people, and of course they've said that's impossible. And it probably was impossible, but I still think about it. Do you think you had like delirium I, tremors or something? I, I, I'd obviously have 1.2 many of whatever it was. <laughs> And and not necessarily a pint either, but uh, if you know what I mean. But, uh, <laughs> but but that that's that's one I uh, I still think of. All around dogs. Everyone. This is interesting, right? Because Gary from um, New Wave British Heavy Metal Band Jaguar said, "No, no, I haven't seen anything really. Actually, I did see it, potentially a ghost dog." Ah, okay. And you said he was driving home from or driving to Gloucester, coming off the A4 or the M4, as it were. And um, a dog ran to the road that he had to have hit. There was nothing else that could have... He was a big dog, and there was no way he didn't hit it. But he didn't feel a bang. He didn't hear a, you know, he didn't hear a bang, didn't feel a bump. He pulled over, had a look around, nothing. And he apparently was, like, in his headlights, right in front of him. There's no way he could have got away. So he thinks he's seen a ghost dog. So there's a trend emerging, is what I'm trying to say. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but it is interesting because I've had a couple of people also say, nah, not at all, never never seen anything weird. And then like a week later, they've emailed me saying, actually, you know what? I've just had a chat with my mate Steve and, and we've remembered this. So it's, it's quite a fun question to ask, I'm finding. Yeah, interesting. Very yeah. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but it appears to be ghost dogs. That's that's the challenge. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> anything you'd like to plug? And it's not like we've got massive listenership over at the Temple of Blair, but... Um, it's it's going to be on the, the story of Roadrunner as I'm compiling it is hopefully going to exist in some form forever. So if there's ever anything you want to plug, um, now would be a good time as we close out. Uh, you mean things I'm working on now, or things you? Uh, I guess like in your case, it would be Red Sands, wouldn't it? As a as a uh, company, and you know, so so obviously what you know in effect what I'm doing now is what I've done since I left third mind roadrunner mm. so i classify myself as a label manager but i also do lots of publicity work um and um so i actually i'm the uk label manager for a, a, a german company mm. but also handle lots of publicity work for both that company and other clients as well mm. so any one time honestly i've got i've got lots going on um so so for example um right now um you know a couple of my big projects in the kind of rock capacity are blue oyster coal and orianthi uh both both the frontiers um, that's interesting we were talking about blue oyster coal on the podcast last night okay yeah yeah so just I'm, terms of, I'm doing sorry, the for the new album that's awesome we, we, we were kind of just talking about like how certain bands are like just they've not necessarily had their day with their institutions and they have always have an audience all the way throughout history without really needing to, um, they don't need to have like a revival as such because they've got a core audience. And we mentioned Deep Purple and Blue Oyster Cult as like those examples. They'll, they'll keep going forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is the first uh, BOC album for nearly 20 years. 20 years, years yeah. yeah. But there's also been a number of uh, reissues and uh, live archive records I've worked on this year as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so those are a couple of biggies. Uh, I'm actually just about to start working a brand new album by Frontline Assembly for, for Metropolis Records, another client of mine. So that comes oh, cool. out in January. 
Uh, I'm working a new album by Pig at the moment, which actually is another band that I was talking to back in 1992, 93, about possibly signing to Third Mind um, back then. So I've been working with them for quite a few years as a publicist. Very cool. Um, uh, actually going right back to the beginning, um, an act I turned down the first ever recording by for, for my Rising from the Red Sand cassettes uh, was a group called Coil. Uh, now, both members of Coil are dead now, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a best of uh, on a label called Cold Spring, um, yeah. which I'm working. That came out last Friday. Um, Very cool. So, yeah, so all the time there's um, there's a lot, you know, a lot of stuff I'm, I'm involved with. Yeah. So there, there's just a few things to plug there. And also Code, you know, my final ever signing to Third Mind, they have a brand new album coming out on the 6th of November called Ghost Ship. Um, right. And I, I'm doing the publicity for that as well. Ah, cool. Awesome. So, so yeah, all these all these acts from back then. It all comes back around again. It all come has all come back around again. Yeah. Yeah. What's the what's Red Sand's preferred media outlet? Is it is is it Twitter? Because I, I remember I I took a stalker approach to contacting you rather than going through normal channels. Yeah. No, I'm um I'm I don't use uh, social media very much at all, and I probably should. Mm. Uh, but um no i mean i'm you know i'm one of these people that's sending out press releases to everyone i know you know at print press online mm. and at radio um and uh, and then following up with you know emails to the people that i think really should be covering it cool cool i guess in red sands in itself is a unique enough collection of words that if someone was to google it you would come straight up Possibly, yeah, but it's red sand in the singular as opposed to... Oh, really? So red sand PR, yeah. Ah, I'm sorry about that. That's all right. Clearly didn't do my research properly. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Okay, then, mate. I, I have no more questions. I think I've completely milked you dry of um, roadrunner yeah. experiences. I, I, I just hope some of that's useful to you. I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot you need to edit out. But, uh, in yeah. terms of um, stories and um links to other sort of worlds it's it's a massive it's a massive help to have have your experiences there because um just where it was at the time roger it was so weird and left field and for what it's known for it's incredibly i don't want it's not tumultuous but almost confusing in terms of what the brand was so it's just interesting just to to get some narrative from um the more left field side and where they were going um but yeah, no, I think it'll be incredibly useful. And you've, you've put me in touch with Andy Saunders, which um, should prove relatively f- fruitful for the, the through-line narrative, as he was the rock guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. But no, thank you very much, mate. I, I very much appreciate okay. your input. Yeah, anything else you need to know, um, don't, don't hesitate to ask. I won't. I'll send you those podcasts as well. Uh, happy editing. Yeah. yeah, I've got like eight hours of editing to do now. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, cheers, mate. Thanks for everything.